Lord, certainly words cannot express, Father, the glory that you deserve and the thanks that ought to overflow from our grateful hearts this morning as we think about the blood of Jesus and its consequences, not just for this life, but life eternal. Oh God, let us live in light of your blood shed for us. As we read earlier today, Father, I pray that we would have the assurance and this time your scripture would buttress our assurance of the understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, when we have you as our source, our treasure, our hope, then we will be, Lord, a bulwark against, our mind will have a defense against the delusion of plausible arguments of man and the thoughts that easily beset us, that this, the sins that long to cling to us. Father, I pray that your word would have a purifying, strengthening effect on us this morning. That sins, Lord Jesus, that remain, that cloud our vision and our understanding, that tempt us to stray, and our love for you, Lord, would be washed by your word. That our hearts would be freshened and made new, Lord Jesus. I pray if there's any weariness, Lord, that besets those who've been in Christ for some time, but the day-to-day well-doing and the duties of the believer begin to wear on, the, on them, Lord, and sometimes we all fall prey to this thought that maybe our works justify us, but we recognize it's your blood and your blood alone again this morning. And I pray that that knowledge would set us free. Set us free to work even harder, Lord, as Colossians describes, with all the energy that you give us. Lord, we are weak, we are frail, we are easily deceived. But it is the Spirit inside of us that gives us strength to overcome. It is the power of God unto salvation, Lord Jesus, that has changed our life. So we draw, Lord Jesus, from the well of your word to strengthen our thirsty soul, Lord, to satisfy our famished hearts. And we pray, Lord, that the impressions that are left, God, would be ones that would give you glory, God, and encourage us in our goal to be more like you and to boldly declare the word of God through the way we live our lives, the words we choose to say, the attitudes we have, and our hope for the future. Thank you so much for this time, Lord. Pray that you would quicken your word to our hearts, that it would produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to thank the Lord for the opportunity of meeting together again. And we're going to do so around Psalm 1. So if you have your Bible with you and want to open up to the first chapter of the book of Psalms, this message will be an introduction the, really to a sermon series that will continue for some time, Lord willing, and should Christ tarry probably many years. We're hoping to do a psalm a month or at least a message from the psalms a month here on the second week of the month. And this is an idea I've been working on for a while and just recently got confidence to move forward in due to some resources that I've been studying. And 
So I hope it's beneficial to you and ultimately gives glory to Christ and shines light on his word. And maybe even this morning as we study the Psalms as a genre, that is biblical poetry as an element of scripture written in a specific way for specific purposes. My hope is that our understanding of its purpose would increase in our minds and also provide you with some tools in your own study as you move forward through the Psalms, or if you find them a good refuge during the week, I know a lot of us in the morning like to open our Bible to the Psalms. And my prayer is as we study them together, that our devotional times would be much richer, armed with more tools to realize the depth of what is before us when we open this book of incredible poetry. The title of this message is Psalm 1, an introduction. I'm going to open with a few comments The first point of this message is biblical poetry distinctives. What makes biblical poetry distinct? That is different, set apart, and indeed far above other types of poetry, popular poetry, secular, if you will, poetry. Just things that man calls beautiful that he comes up with arbitrarily in his own mind and thinking. I'd like to draw some distinctions through our experience with poetry, maybe as you're going through lit you know, literature uh, class or whatever in school, your ideas of what poetry might be, draw some distinctions between those and biblical poetry. Because biblical poetry, like all of the truths, the genres, the beautiful ways that the word of God is recorded in scripture, is far superior, immeasurably so, infinitely more powerful and valuable than any cheap imitation that man can think of. In other words, the theme of this message And I believe also the theme of the very first chapter in Psalms is that poetry exists for a God-ordained purpose. And in order for it to have value, it must fall into that purpose. In other words, you could take it or leave it, but either way, it's not going to be much benefit to you. I'd like to make that case a little stronger, as I mentioned, from Psalm 1. We'll open with reading this psalm. It's just six verses, but it's very rich and We'll just scratch the surface this morning, but hopefully it will whet our appetite to study more on our own time and also as we move, plan to move through the book in future weeks, future months. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will stand in the judgment, will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. First point, as I mentioned, biblical poetry distinctives, and we're going to draw some contrast with worldly and secular poetry. If you walk into a bookstore, say Barnes and Nobles today, or maybe even a Christian bookstore, or better yet, if you're walking through a supermarket and you see a rack of books, usually the titles are ones that grab the attention by an appeal to the flesh, especially in a supermarket. All those like bronze and, you know, uh, 
uh, whatever, guys with the big bow, you know, warrior types, trying to appeal to a certain lust of the flesh, like these romance, you know, for all the women who dream of a knight in shining armor and their husband has fallen short of their fanciful expectations. There's a book on the shelf for you. You can read it and imagine you're in that place, a way of escape for you. In the same way, I mean, most literature falls into a similar category. It's advertised to be compelling to our flesh. Poetry, the same way, advertised as an emotional experience, a way that you can be entertained. Most literature, the vast majority, if you went through the Library of Congress, you'd be absolutely overwhelmed with the amount, the volume. And indeed, if you were walking in the spirit, walking through the halls of the libraries that are comprehensive libraries that contain all the literature that has been written of late and in recent modern history, your heart should literally break that so many pages of wasted words stand and are sold on bookshelves and we somehow save them like they're valuable. Is there any way to decipher between value and that which is absolutely dispensable, disposable, throw away and indeed might be poisonous for the soul? There is a standard of measure. The word of God gives it to us and Psalm 1 is a great place to start. In order to discern whether this piece of poetry, this piece of literature is worth even giving the time of day or whether this piece of poetry is worth treasuring, memorizing, and taking, taking with us. You will find that biblical poetry as you work through the Psalms is very distinct. It's very different than modern day poetry or writing that is meant to pique the interest or draw on human emotions. As again, as we go through the bookshelves of today, we see stuff that is written for the purpose of the reading experience. And that's what it's written for, to give you a good time while you read it. But in those racks, either in the Library of Congress on a modern bookshelf or in the grocery store, you will never find a genre, a bunch of books that are not novels, not self-help books, not, you know, biographies, not tell-all, you know, stories, not the current inspirational or whatever books are up there. You won't find a category titled wisdom literature, but that is a category in scripture. And we have such a great need for wisdom literature. This first Psalm is a great example of wisdom literature. The hero of the story is the ability to discern truth beginning with God and his principles. That is the hero of wisdom literature. If you work through the book of Proverbs, you see principles that are inarguable, that are decreed by God, is the point of the story, the hero of the story. Thus, the story of a fool becomes an example to the negative. The story of a wise man, an example to the positive. But all of the literature revolves around a precept, a principle, a truth, something that God has ordained, directed, or decreed that is unshakable, and is only violated to the folly of the person who dares think otherwise. It always stands. In our society today, we don't value this kind of wisdom. We would sooner be gods ourselves, declaring to ourselves what is true. And we would, soon ha- we would sooner have a self-centered, a self-acclaimed standard for truth and reality. We've even lost the idea of what it really means to have a constitutional republic. And you hear people now talking about a living, breathing constitution. There was a time in history 
We're generally culture-affirmed standards, truths, and wisdom to which everything else should be held accountable to a greater degree than today. And they even form their systems of government around that kind of thinking. But today we're in danger of losing the solidarity of our union, even as a government, because we now see our constitution not as a document of inarguable truths or ones that should be promoted or corrected according to standards in scripture, but instead some sort of sale that would just bring us where we choose to go in the flesh. That would legitimize every wanton human desire. That would give us permission to pursue the things that we want to pursue and never hold those desires accountable to the standards of truth. We need wisdom literature to return to the experience of this society, to be a valued section in the bookstores, in the supermarkets today. I can't guarantee that you'll ever see a section or a genre like that standing in the bookstores of today. But fortunately, we hold in our hands the word of God and wisdom literature is featured in the book of Psalms and in the book of Proverbs. And it stands to correct us, to convict us, and for the believer, we have a place to turn from which to draw principles and things to organize and center our life around. I'm going to read to you a few thoughts. If I were to write an essay, I've kind of gathered a few of my thoughts from studying this week and put them together in a few sentences I'll pass along. Biblical poetry in form serves the ultimate declaration of truth, not the emotional experience of the reader. Though the truths expressed are presented in ways that evoke corresponding and appropriate emotional response, the form, that is the form of poetry, exists for the sake of truth, not to entertain the reader. Secular poetry is often intentionally ambiguous. You ever get that where you read some poems and you like have somebody that's so confident they know exactly what it means? And you talk to somebody else who read the same poem, totally different idea. And then you have some professor that stands up and says... Oh, with a whole lot of certainty in his voice. This is what, you know, Longfellow or uh, Wordsworth or whatever they were talking about when they wrote this. And you're like, how did you get that from that? In many ways, modern poetry, poetry that exists for itself, art that is not rooted in purposes of scripture. It's just there to evoke the emotion of the reader. It's intentionally ambiguous. It's not there to declare things, to make them clear but instead to give you a license to just feel and to explore. It doesn't provide foundations and moorings, but just winds of doctrine that will blow you as freely as your desires want you to take in your, in your uh, specifically in your mental processes. As you read secular poetry is often intentionally ambiguous, encouraging the reader to make of it what he will. Sometimes it's sort of hypnotic and fanciful, Uh, Other times, it it tries to manipulate you through sentimental appeal, sometimes indiscriminately connecting of feelings to implicit ideas, objects, or experiences, and really, poetry that is not biblical poetry, it exploits emotion to suspend judgment and promote false liberty. And I'm going to expand that phrase to include art, expression, expressions of art, what we, this is a broader principle than is, it shouldn't be limited as we consider it to merely poetry. But really, if anything is out there declaring, using adjectives, drawing on imagery, displaying pictures in front of you, 
could be film, it could be any of these things that are so prevalent in our culture by way of entertainment, the adjectives we choose as we speak, the way we describe stuff, the way we tell a story. If it is not biblical, if it's not rooted in truth, really all it's doing is exploiting emotion to suspend our judgment and promote a false liberty. Not so in scripture. In the scripture, we don't find poets like Edgar Allan Poe who would try to attach a fascination to death. I really like to read with the sort of dark intrigue. Some of these poets when I was younger, like Edgar Allan Poe, who would write the telltale heart. And there's this hypnotic sense and it draws you in. There's a degree of mystery there. But do you notice what that poet is doing? He's attaching uh, intrigue to things of darkness, death, and insanity. Not so in scripture, not biblical poetry. Wisdom literature would dictate that intrigue and mystery be assigned to that which is representative of God's character and godliness. That we should be compelled and drawn in and feel emotion based on who God is and who we are in light of him and who we ought to be through the commandments and the direction that scripture chooses us to walk. So when you are sitting there listening in class, use the Bible as discernment. When the if you are in a, a, a place of kind of higher education or whatever, a college student or something like that, or you're just listening to the commentary of our culture, when someone says, this is an incredible example of poetry, notice how they draw on all this image and everything else, realize you can go to Psalm 1. You can go to wisdom literature and scripture and hold all of the art that is constantly whirling about in our experience accountable to God's ordained purpose that art even be there. To root our emotions, our feelings, our hope, our joys, our love, our affections in the things of God. Not to give them license to just feel whatever we want to. Poets often attach sorrow to fleshly lost. But in the word of God, sorrow is attached to the judgments that God dispenses. Or the idea that you would be separated from his favor. In secular poetry, you see things like tragedies where the deepest emotions are drawn out of those who are taken in by these stories. And you feel more sadness and you find yourself crying. But the sorrow that you're feeling may be misappropriated. Maybe it's something that only represents a fleshly loss. And the word of God tells us, what does it profit a man? Should we gain the whole world, but lose our soul? And conversely, what sorrow is it if we lose this world, but gain our soul? So even a secular tragedy, even Shakespeare and the like, is not biblical poetry and therefore must be judged with the discernment that the word of God brings. Sorrow and sadness ought to be connected to the idea that we would fall short of the glory of God. Joy, encouragement, hope for the future ought to be connected to the idea that he has made propitiation for our sins. That his atoning blood could make us holy so we could be in right relationship with him. These are some of the thoughts that provided distinctives between biblical poetry and other poetry. I'm sure there are many professors or people in academic circles who would frown on biblical poetry saying it's uh, simplistic or ancient or primitive or something of, of, of that nature. But you must understand that biblical poetry serves a God-ordained purpose. That it is effective as it inspires according to godliness. 
Secular poetry is judged good, quote-unquote, as it affects the reading experience. But biblical poetry is, is effective as it inspires according to godliness. Thus, the devices that are employed lend themselves to emphasis, to clarity, instruction, remembrance, revelation, conviction, worship, fear of God, recounting, beauty, and repentance. So again, drawing this contrast as other forms of art in our culture, they're just there to enhance your own emotional experience. Conversely, as you read biblical poetry, you don't find intentional ambiguity. You don't find confusion. You find things repeated. You find clarity. It is, it's self-interpreting in many times. You find repetition. It's there to serve the purpose of remembering what God has done and taking seriously his words and commands. So if something is repeated, you probably ought to remember it. If it's in song form, maybe it would help you memorize. If it's something that is a recurring theme, maybe that should be a flag to us. This is significant. This is important. If there are emotions that we feel that are misapplied, a lot of times biblical poetry is very penitent. It's repentance, it's apologizing, it's laying your heart bare before the Lord that you have wasted your affections on things that are ungodly and you're asking to return to him. So as we move through the Psalms, you will see these patterns recurring. Incidentally, probably the primary uh, form of biblical poetry is sometimes referred to as parallelism. It's how one idea is repeated in several different ways thus providing more clarity and emphasis to its meaning. So just by way of a study guide, I wanted to pass that along to you. A great study for going through the Psalms is to look for parallel ideas and to match them up. There's a ton of them. We won't even get to them all in Psalm 1 and just see six short verses. But if you do that as a study guide, okay, where does this line parallel to the next line? Sometimes it's in comparison. Sometimes it's in contrast. And as you connect the dots, and I even drew in my Bible some lines. Okay, this connects to here. You know, the wicked are judged, the righteous prosper, for example. He's planted like a tree, um, but this guy is, you know, like chaff blown in the wind. It's incredible the shades of beauty and meaning that we can glean from this incredible book. Secular poetry exists to legitimize and celebrate the self-centered human experience But I'll close this first point with this. Biblical poetry exists to proclaim the nature of God and godliness. All other art, all other poetry, all other means of expression outside of biblical, outside of that which is biblical, exists to legitimize and celebrate the self-centered human experience. Conversely, on the other hand, in stark opposition to that purpose, biblical poetry exists to proclaim the nature of God and and godliness. And if you leave with only one thought under that first heading of biblical poetry distinctives, you could leave with that biblical poetry exists to proclaim the nature of God and godliness. With that introduction, I hope that's helpful in our study as we continue through this book over the years. I'll lead you to point number two, which is an attempt to nail down a theme for Psalm 1. And as I read it over and over and considered with kind of the structure that I've given you in mind, These words occurred to me and this thought occurred to me by way of summary. Psalm 1 teaches us the pursuit of happiness must begin with truth or it will surely end in judgment. 
Psalm 1 teaches us that the pursuit of happiness must begin with truth or it will surely end in judgment. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1.1, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Underneath that theme statement, that the pursuit of happiness, or you could include other things, the pursuit of happiness, or the pursuit of beauty, or of wisdom, or of holiness, they must begin with truth, or they will surely end in judgment. This is emphasized by a number of parallels as we continue to uh, make these connections in the psalm. As we see just in verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. It's stated in a different way in the next line, nor stands in the way of sinners. And then a third time, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So let's talk about the operating procedure of those who despise God's law. When they walk, when they stand, and when they sit, none of them are effective or purposeful, but all of them lead to folly and destruction. But notice the progression of those three, three parallels, these three positional statements, walk, stand, and sit. When you're walking, you have the most ability to travel, cover territory, achieve certain things, you know, go from point A to point B. But once you stop and stand, now you are more limited. If you could not walk, but could only stand, there's only, you know, so far you could travel. You could appreciate things to the vicinity that your eyes could take in, but you could never see what is beyond the horizon. So you see a regressing, a regressing, and this shows us the downward spiral of sin. A man might start out walking in the counsel of the wicked, but will soon find that he's not able to walk anymore. But he has a severe handicap because he does not begin his pursuit of wisdom or his pursuit of happiness with the law of God. And then he finds himself standing, more limitations. This is if he is not deceived and open to his actual position in light of the circumstances around him. The tragedy is that most remain deceived. And they continue in their folly and then finally, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, even more limited. It's illustrating to us in these parallels that sin has a regressive nature. If we seek to be super ambitious, but we do so independent of God's rules, we will get worse and worse and worse. We will move from ability to walk to maybe just being able to stand and finally we will sit. And worst of all, we won't even know what's happening to us. If we try to achieve happiness, if we try to pursue wisdom, if we try to ensure our future apart from the law of God, his principles and his directives, we will find ourselves caught in a downward regressive spiral of sin. We live in a society whose worldview is largely shaped by evolution. That says in an antichrist spirit, exactly the opposite. No man is evolving. He can progress through good counsel among themselves and through human reasoning alone to a better and a higher state. 
But such is not the case. We're all familiar with that, you know, chart on the wall that shows some kind of hairy monkey, primate or what have you. And then he begins to stand up a little more. Well, I guess it starts with some gooey mass or whatever. And then there's another animal, some transitional form. Incidentally, none of them are in the fossil record. And then you get a primate and they stand a little more erect. Actually, the reverse is true in a spiritual sense. If you just flip that chart around, that's a better picture of what it looks like should we remain in our sin and deny God's sovereignty and what he has declared as true. Our knuckles will begin to drag. And finally, we begin to drag ourselves into the dirt until we are face down without any ability to think logically, according to scripture, to connect the dots of life, to proceed in a way that would honor God. And the fallout will be horrendous. And the, dece- and the deceiving nature of sin is such that we may not even realize it. How many of us have experienced this in our own lives? And how many of us see this in the culture around It doesn't take a whole lot of wisdom to see that because men try to lead nations and they appeal to a council, but they stand in the way of sinners, they sit in the way of scoffers, they're doing exactly what this chapter tells us not to do. They are finding themselves in a worsening state than when they started. First they walk, then they stand, then they sit. But the next parallel is the council, the way, and the seat. And then thirdly, the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. As we look even to the administrations of today, the leadership of our land, they have a cabinet, they have a group of advisors, but much like the kings of old, they're largely yes men. You don't find good Bible exegetes as cabinet members of presidents anymore, not in this secular day and age. And incidentally, the knuckles of society are dragging and we are running ourselves into the dirt. And God's primary structures and conditions for life are absolutely despised. And society becomes more fragmented, less independent, and more and more dysfunctional. And families begin to fall apart. Why? Because we stand in the way of sinners. Because we sit in the seat of scoffers. And we receive our counsel from the wicked. This is not the way the blessed man lives his life. It says by contrast in verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord And on his law, he meditates day and night. And here's another set of parallels for you. In stark contrast to the wicked, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, its leaf does not wither. So instead of a man that is blown around and easily influenced and not anchored in his thinking, who is regressive, Note that a man who is righteous, that is blessed, and meditates on the law of God is exactly the opposite. He is planted, and his understanding and his future, his growth and maturity, is progressive. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. He yields his fruit in season, and he has unwithering leaves. Indeed, in Christ, we know he has eternal life. And the imagery is starkly different. As we begin to connect these parallels, we see the tree could relate to us right back to delighting in the law. We see streams could remind us of meditating on that law. The source of maturity, of growth, of a future, of blessing for us, we will find when we honor God's principles. And when we think of law, we can think of it in the larger biblical context of things that God has decreed, things that he has directed. And things that the word gives us the ability to discern. 
This man who organizes his life according to precepts like this is like a tree and draws his source of his thinking and his future from these streams of living water. He begins to yield seasonable fruit and his leaf does not wither. In fact, in all that he does, he prospers. And then it goes back to a contrast in verse four. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And we see in conclusion, the distinctions between honoring God and dishonoring him, between elevating man's thinking and walking in the knowledge of God. We see as we connect that the wicked are not so, they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. They don't feel that way. They walk in the counsel of the men that they trust, of the wicked as the word judges them in order to ensure their future. But the message of Psalm one is that walking in the counsel of the wicked will give you as much power over the future as the chaff has over the wind. So I'm just, you know, trying to do the best I can to make sure that my future is secure. So you surround yourself with advisors. So you seek ways apart from God's law to justify yourself and to plan for the future. But if we ensure our future by an appeal to the counsel of the wicked, we're pretending that we're controlling what happens tomorrow, but we have no power over tomorrow any more than the chaff has power over the wind. And this imagery draws from the threshing floor. The wheat is surrounded by the chaff. And as it's beaten, the nutritional element, the grain is set free from its uh, shell. And then the winnowing fork is brought under that wheat and the chaff mix. It's blown up into the air. The wind comes and blows the chaff away. The chaff is absolutely at the mercy of the wind. And you, apart from the knowledge of God or any man apart from the truth of scripture is freely blown away and has no power to control his own destiny. These images in scripture become a well from which other scripture draws in the beginning of Luke. I believe in chapter three, John the Baptist prophesies to the coming of Christ. And he says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he is there to separate the wheat and the chaff. So when the fork of God's word is brought under the mess of society and it is thrown into the air, that which has drawn on the wisdom of man will be blown away to judgment. But that which remains are those who are secure in Christ. And that's the picture here. This is the picture that helps us realize the value of rooting everything, including art, in the purpose for which God intends to shed light on that which is truly valuable, namely his precepts, the revelation of himself in his word. The wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. It says in verse five, the source of delight in the ways of sin leads to a crushing blow on judgment day. You see that the wicked man stands in the way of sinner. He has no concept of delighting in the law of the Lord. He delights to secure his own future or chases whatever is advertised at that particular time and might consider the Bible as old news, trite or ridiculous. But those who think that way 
Although they place their delight in another source, receive a crushing blow on judgment day, they might feel like they stand now in the way of sinners, but they will not stand on the day of judgment, which is most important when the day of true reckoning occurs and finally sits in the way of scoffers. And we see the parallel and sinners or not nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, though they make their communion, their association, so they fellowship with scoffers, self-acclaimed skeptics, though they feel like they have something in common and that they can relate to these type of people or that type of thinking. The tragedy is in light of God's truth that we, they will not know the way of the righteous and they will not be in the congregation. I'm sorry. And they will not be in the congregation of the righteous. So those who find communion with self-acclaimed skeptics will be denied association with the redeemed. But those who delight in truth are firmly planted tree. The law of God provides a stream of water and fruit in season becomes their meditations on the law of God. I'd like to draw an application for you today. How does this relate? There might be some, you know, as I'm presenting this, it might seem like some complicated concepts. Let me attempt to make it very simple. While you are spending time in your devotional time reading the word of God, What does that mean for you? Is it similar to a time clock so that you can at least feel like you deserve to say you're a Christian? I've at least fulfilled this obligation. Or the thoughts that you glean from your time reading the word or study helps in your devotion time, do do they lead in your mind to further meditation on God's law? I wonder why God decreed everything he did in the Old Testament. Do we even pause to consider? I sometimes try to give myself these challenging questions. Why did God ordain that Israel camp the way they did, for instance? You know, the temple or the tabernacle was central to the whole existence of that society. The camp was set up on all sides. The Bible records this in detail. The answer is why? Well, as we meditate on how God set his laws, even in the way, the order of the Israelite camp, maybe it could lead us to something of God's nature and godliness. And we might begin to connect the dots. We might have some fruitful meditations on God's law and realize that in John, when it declares in in John, the first chapter, that Jesus has come to dwell and we find out that word really means tabernacle, that the tabernacle of old is now fulfilled in Christ. And now Christ camps in the center of the believing community. And all that we do and celebrate and dwell on is meant to be centered on him. We ought to have a biblical reason for what we entertain ourselves with. We can learn this as a product of meditating on the law And this is the fruit of what a blessed man pursues. He begins to have more of his mental processes, the things he loves, and the connections he comes to, the conclusions he draws, rooted in the stream that is the law of God, his truth, his word. And then he begins to produce fruit by way of meditations, and things begin to make sense according to Scripture. And he begins to have a great confidence welling up inside of him that makes him unshakable in his faith. And now the life that he exhibits, seen in this picture of leaves, they will not wither. They will not fade. 
Now, not so the advertising campaigns and the TV shows. I mean, everything is in a constant state of flux in this society. But there is an anchor for your soul and you can find it in scripture so that the fruit and the life that you exhibit will remain not just for this life, but eternally. Finally, I'd like to close this message with a call for artistic reformation. We opened with this theme in the book of Psalms, chapter one, the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of beauty, the pursuit of wisdom, of holiness, of a future, of a hope. It must begin with truth or it will surely end in judgment. We cannot find truth just by pursuing things our own way. God has ordained the means. God has ordained the ends. We live in a lawless and transient society that is seeking down every dead end road to find meaning for their life. Let it not be said among his people. Let us not pursue something because we feel it. Let us not lead with our emotions and thus legitimize the human experience, whatever it might be. But let us understand our nature in light of scripture that we are born with sinful tendencies and a destructive bent. And aside from God's redemption, we will be a regressive, sinful people fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 1 in a downward spiral that ends in hell. Instead, let us be different. Let us be a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in due season, season with leaves that do not wither. As we begin to bring this message to a close, you can see how there is great room for growth in our culture. And particularly in the church, there is no excuse that we would have anything among us that would lead with our emotions and somehow follow and come to truth by our own feelings, our experience, or our own human way of thinking. Instead, we should hold up the word of God as sufficient and Jesus Christ as supreme. And only then do we deserve to feel assurance Only then should we feel safe. Only then will we know that we are a blessed man or woman. And in all that we do, we will prosper. And then finally in verse six, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In verse six, it says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Does he not know the way of the wicked? Well, of course he does. We know from scripture that God is omniscient. So what does the psalmist mean when he says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous? Well, connecting all the dots in this chapter, maybe it means something like this, that righteousness is proclaimed in Psalm 1 as the unity of delight with the Godhead. So God knows the way of the righteous because they delight in what he delights in. Bringing us back to verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. God knows that way because that is God's way. God delights to make himself manifest, to declare truth, to reveal himself and to magnify and dispense his glory. If we delight in the same, we know that we will be the man that is proclaimed to be blessed and having an obtaining of eternal life and fruit and that will never perish. But again, as this verse closes, not so for the wicked, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. My hope is that our lessons that we learn from this book would shape us into the vision of what wisdom looks like in scripture 
And that if there's anything that stands in the way that we've drawn from that really isn't the stream of water that is God's law, that our lives would begin to be conformed to the image of Christ at the exclusion of these other influences. And my hope is that as the church rises up to realize that the word of God is sufficient and it is totally the answer to all our problems that we will have bold voices, even though we may be few in number, that would call for a reformation. That spiritually would be able to turn over tables of useless literature like Jesus did with the money changers in the temple and say, this is not what worship is. Worship of God honors him as supreme and lets our emotions follow the declaration of truth. It doesn't trust the human experience to lead us to truth or to a hope. Instead, it surrenders to the knowledge of God. And for the believer with all of scripture in view, we know that the only way for us to be unified in our heart with the delights of God is for us to be reborn. This concept is absolutely foreign to those who are lost in their sin. We have no abiding desire for holiness, only self-justification, only the bondage that the sin nature gives us. But if we come to the cross and we trust Jesus Christ, that his righteousness in dwelling is our only hope, then we will begin to show evidence of that in the fruit following. And we will begin to walk in a way that will emanate the glory of God to a greater and greater degree, starting with roots that are firmly planted in streams of living water. Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray as we let our hearts and minds, Lord, be laid bare before the truth of scripture, that you would hold us, Lord Jesus, in the refiner's fire long enough to be purified. Lord, we pray that we would not resist your hand when you come with discipline and correction and words and wisdom. Though we may have to abandon prior positions, let us throw them aside, Lord, and joyfully hang on to the truth that you declare. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring conviction to our hearts if there's things that we've relied on to organize our life, to give us hope, Lord Jesus, to make us feel better about ourselves that simply aren't scriptural, that we would have grace to see them for the sin they are, the filthy rags, to reject them, Lord. I pray, Lord Jesus, that upon your return or when you call us home, that you would not find us standing in the way of sinners and in the seat of scoffers, and among the wicked, but instead that you would find each believer in this room with roots firmly planted, Lord, in the streams of living water that are the principles of your word. Lord, I pray that we would produce fruit and that we would begin to echo the truth that is in the word of God and hold the wickedness around us to account. We know, Lord Jesus, that this task is too much for us to bear, but we surrender our souls to you. And we pray that you would use us as vessels. If that happens, it will be testimony to your glory. Because Lord, truly a soul as wicked as ours, should it experience this kind of transformation, owes everything to the life-transforming blood of Jesus Christ. We celebrate your blood this morning. And thank you so much for the grace by which we are saved. Be honored today in our lives as we close. In Jesus' name, amen.